Well, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible with you in hand, that's all right. You can read the scripture on the screen this morning. Uh, We're going to be in verses 16 through 23. So 16 through 23 as we continue our series through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians living in the ancient city of Colossae, we're calling this, Is Christ Enough? That's the question, essentially, that you uh, that Paul repeatedly answers as he delivers this letter. He's talking about the wonderful truth of Jesus Christ, who he actually is, that he is more than enough for our lives. And so uh, we're going to keep digging into this today in verses 16 through 23. But before we get to that, uh, let me pray for us and ask Jesus to bless his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that you came to earth to rescue us from our sin. You lived the life we could not live. You died the death that we should have died, and you rose from the grave to defeat the power of sin and death forever. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us new life as we put our faith in you. We thank you for this opportunity Lord, to worship today, to hear the Word of God, to listen. Now, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts and help us to respond appropriately to your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, kind of picking up where we left off last week, here's the situation. Uh, The Apostle Paul has already alluded to the fact that there was some kind of philosophy, some kind of teaching that was floating around the city of Colossae that was not from Christ, not from the Scriptures, not actually true. And so the teaching essentially was something, we haven't got, we're going to see it today, but essentially, you know, okay, there must be something else that you need besides Jesus in your life. So Jesus is good, but you also need this to really experience full Christian fulfillment. Well, now Paul is going to address this false teaching very specifically today, and that's where we pick up in verse 16. So I want us to kind of walk through these verses. I'll explain some things as we go, and then we'll, we'll talk about it uh, at the end and, and dive deep into it. So let's start in verse 16. So Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, that is probably a confusing verse if you are not uh, an Old Testament theologian or scholar. Uh, it's difficult, right? So, so let's, let's break that down real quick. What is Paul talking about? Well, notice he says, therefore, right? So anywhere, anywhere you see therefore in Scripture, you need to look a little bit further back. And what we know is that he's referring to what he just said previously in the verses leading up to this in this letter. Paul has been very clear, right? He's been very clear. Because of Christ, we are spiritually alive Right? Jesus has made us alive through his death and resurrection and our faith in him. We are spiritually alive, therefore, we are accepted by God and we are free from the controlling power of sin 
over our lives as it once did. So that's, that's what we've learned so far. So in light of that glorious truth about us and our relationship to God through Christ, Paul now says, okay, so here's what you can't do. You can't let anyone else come in and say, okay, yeah, but Christ isn't enough alone. You need all these other things. So there's someone, there's some group of people in Colossae who are apparently saying, hey, you guys, you guys need to practice and observe all of these Old Testament rules and festivals and laws, you need to do that for your faith to be authentic and real. In other words, they were telling the new Christians, and keep in mind, these are new believers. These are new Christians who had recently heard the gospel, recently given their life to Christ, right? And so these people are coming in and saying, you have to follow the same dietary laws that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness, and you have to observe the same festivals and the same things that that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Now, listen, on the outset, that doesn't sound all that bad or, or wrong, does it? It doesn't sound bad to say, hey, we need to observe the rules that God gave us in the Old Testament. Well, no, it doesn't sound like that could be wrong. But look what Paul says, though. He gives an explanation, a brief one, but an imagery here. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come. So what is he talking about? You see, the dietary laws and certain emphasis on the calendar for the Israelites in Genesis and Exodus and and the Old Testament, right? You see these things. Paul says, these are shadows. In other words, they ultimately served as pointers to the real substance of what they're leading to. What were they leading to? Paul says they were leading to Christ, Jesus. They were good. They were purposeful. They were from God, those Old Testament laws. Yes, absolutely. But they really served as clues, as pointers, that something better was needed that something else was needed and that something else was a someone it was Jesus Christ so when Christ came to earth guess what he was the fulfillment of the old testament he was the fulfillment the substance to those shadows if you will So the whole Old Testament, here's some just basic good biblical knowledge for you to have about what the content of the Bible. The whole Old Testament, you know what it really is doing? It is pointing us to our need for a Savior. It is pointing us to Jesus Christ. So the whole Old Testament is just screaming, help, we need someone to save us from our sin and that someone we see Jesus come to earth in the first century. He is that someone. He is that Savior. So in Christ, the Old Testament law is fulfilled, meaning Christians today are not bound to the Old Testament law. We are under the new covenant of Christ. As Paul said previously in verse 10, You have Christ fully now. He is the true substance to those shadows, right? He's the substance you need. He is all that you must have. But these people here 
in Colossae are saying, no, you've got to follow those rules in the Old Testament. You have to follow those to have a relationship with God or you must do these things to keep a good status or standing before God. They're wanting to keep a spiritual scorecard. That's what they're trying to do here, right? And I can empathize with that a little bit. I get it. Because listen, I'm, I'm all about some scorecards. Like I can't fathom when someone wants to play golf with me and they just say, let's just play for fun. I'm like, what is that? Right? Why would you want to do that? We're here. No, we're keeping score because I ultimately I want to try to beat you. Right? I mean, even my kids playing putt, putt, like, no, tap that in all the way. Come on, put it in. Right? <laughs> it's ingrained in our nature, isn't it? We want to keep score. We want to keep measurements of how we're doing. And that's what these teachers who are coming into Colossae are saying spiritually. Now, hey, we're going to keep score here. And we're going to see how good or bad we're all doing. But not just the Old Testament law. They are insisting on even more rules and experiences the Colossians must do or have or complete to have a real full experience of God. But again, Paul says no. Look at verse 18. Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. We'll stop right there. So whoever this was or whatever group this was, they were into these more mystical experiences with God. Paul was concerned that, okay, listen, you know, these things may sound intriguing. They may be attractive. They'll definitely get your attention. They may be better in some way. They sound like they would be. And whoever was introducing this was insisting that the Christians in Colossae participate in these visions and start worshiping the actual angels. And they were seeking to, as it says, disqualify the faith of anyone who didn't participate. So basically, they're kind of like a one-upper. You know, have you ever known someone who's a one-upper? You know what I mean? It's like you talk about something in your life, but they've done it better or they have one that's better. You know what I mean? That's kind of how, how these teachers were who were coming into the Colossian church, right? They're like, hey, well, you know, you've got your faith, but our faith is so much better because we have visions about worship and we worship angels and, and we do all these other things and we're very, you know, we, have, we practice asceticism. So we, you know, fast to make sure that we're really holy and all these things, right? But Paul says this person or group has become disconnected from the real truth. Look what he says in verse 19. He continues his sentence. He says, and not holding fast to the head, capital H, Jesus from whom the whole body, the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Holding fast, holding tightly to Christ and His gospel is the only way the church, the whole body, Paul says, will be truly nourished and united and grow in a healthy manner. Because the true spiritual growth is from God alone and found in His Word, not these extra mystical experiences that these people are claiming to have. Verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. You see, the false teachers are coming up with all these rules. Hey, if you really want to be a good Christian, if you really want the full experience of God, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Don't drink that, right? The false teachers are coming up with all these rules, but Paul says, no, you have to remember your new identity and real reality. You are free in Christ. You answer to the truth, his truth alone. Verse 23, these have indeed a, an, an appearance of wisdom in promoting, keyword, self-made religion, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It can be tricky. It can be tricky, but, but some of these rules and these new beliefs or ideas, they can look and sound enticing or helpful or even spiritual. But only the Holy Spirit, through the message of the gospel, can change someone's heart and therefore change someone's sinful desires to being good and holy desires. That's what Paul means when he says, all of those rules that you're going to try to live by, they may make you look like a good person. And you may be able to compare yourself to other people and people say, wow, look at all the rules that he or she follows. But at the end of the day, just obeying those rules have no power to change your actual heart and your actual character. Paul says they cannot stop the indulgences of the flesh. In other words, the things that you really want to do that are sinful and disobedient to God's word, rules have never change someone's heart. Only the Holy Spirit of God can change a heart. So in short, here's, here's what we just read, okay? This is it. Here's a list of things you need to do, and here are some rules you need to follow. If you really want to have God's approval and experience the fullness of God, that's what the teachers are saying. That's what Paul is refuting here. All right, so what can we see from this? How does this apply to our daily lives? As, as Paul addresses this false teaching in Colossae, is there something that we can gain in the year 2023 from this? I think so. I think we see a false belief, a wrong practice, and then the right belief and practice. So that's the three categories I want us to talk about today. All right, so number one, let's, let's talk about the, the root of the problem here. In this false teaching, the teachers are saying you need to follow all these rules to have a good standing with God and, and experience fullness of God. Well, the false belief, number one, it's a performance-based acceptance and approval. That's what it is, right? It's all about performance. Boy, do we live in a performance-based world, don't we? Right? I mean, we just, from a young age, right? I mean, I already told you, I love to keep score, but, but all of us, Right? We're all, we all grow up, in, an, in a, at least in American society, believing that we have to perform really well to be accepted and to be approved by others. It is all, our whole lives are this way. 
I mean, think about it. To, to get into a certain college or university, what do you have to do? I mean, they're not just going to let you walk in, though the community college I went to, it was like, well, just come on. We need people, <laughs> you know. I get it. <laughs> I understand, right? <laughs> I did not do good on the SAT, trust me. But to get into a certain college or university, right, you got to get the grades, right? To get a promotion at work, what do you have to do, right? You got to work really hard. To, to win a ball game, you got to score more runs than the other team, right? So acceptance and approval from others is largely based on how well we perform in our life. So this way of living is ingrained in our minds from a very early age, but the problem comes when we start believing that that is also true about how we get to God. When we believe that that is true about our standing and our relationship with God. Now, we covered this some last week, and I don't want to sound too repetitive here, but this is important. Remember last week I talked about how uh, imagine your life on a set of scales, right? And so on one side, you have your good behavior, and on the other side, you have all the bad things you've ever done. And I think a lot of people, because of our performance-driven culture and, and upbringing and mindset, we just let that spill over. It kind of carries over into our relationship with God. And so a lot of us, what we do is, is we just kind of hope. We're really just living on a prayer, pun intended, right? We're just hopeful that when we die and we stand before God, He's going to just whip out these scales in heaven and that he's been keeping and he's going to set all the good deeds you've ever done and all the bad things you've ever done and whew, fingers crossed, man. Hope, hope my good stuff outweighs my bad. Maybe God will let me into heaven, right? That's what we are tempted to believe because of this performance-driven mindset that we must do really well and impress God with our behavior and then maybe if the good outweighs the bad, he will let us into eternal heaven with him. We have to perform. We have to live with moral excellence so we can win God's approval. That's what we believe. That's what the false teachers in Colossae were saying. That's what they're saying. They had this list of rules, a checklist that you had to follow or experiences that you had to have to have good standing with God and to have this fuller experience of God, they say. But why did they believe that? And why do we struggle with this foundational misbelief? Pastor J.D. Greer, one of my favorite pastors, he gives a great explanation of this in his book, Gospel. He talks about how Adam and Eve, all right, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, remember before they sinned, right? Before they sinned, they were naked and it didn't bother them. They were clothed, quote, unquote, in the love and acceptance of God. That's all they needed. That's why they didn't feel shameful. It wasn't weird or awkward. They had all the approval and acceptance and love of God, and that filled their hearts. We can't even fathom that thought. But after they committed a sin, after they disobeyed God and, and crossed the boundaries that he gave for them, they were left with this, this immediate sense of exposure right? And, and fear and guilt and shame. And so what did they do? If you know the story in Genesis 3, what did they do? They quickly found some fig leaves. 
They found some fig leaves and to cover themselves up, to cover up their guilt and their shame. And so temporarily, those fig leaves, what did they do? They made them feel accepted. They gave them this false sense of acceptance. Greer says, we have all been on the same quest ever since. We try to cover the shame of our nakedness by establishing our worthiness in some way. Right? So this is what we do. This is what we do. He says, we find something that sets us apart from others. So we're smarter. We got into a certain kind of school. Right? We have a good job and makes, we make lots of money. We're a good parent. We're more faithful or we're more religious than others. We will use just about anything to establish our worth. And so we pull and we grab and we reach for anything that may establish us as being worthy of God, that he will actually accept us and approve of us. We want to prove to ourselves, not just God, but to ourselves, to others, that we are good enough in this life. And that's the false belief. It's a belief that acceptance and approval is performance-driven. But that leads, when you believe that, that leads to a wrong practice. And that's what we see here secondly. The wrong practice, that leads us to just constant measuring. Constant measuring. So, so this wrong belief, performance-based salvation, is going to drastically affect how we live our daily lives. We're going to constantly be measuring our worth as a human, as a person, by all the wrong units of measurement. Author Jen Wilkin, in her book, None Like Him, she talks about how we humans, we love measuring things. She says, so take a look in your pantry, right? What are you going to see? You're going to see every food label would tell you the number of calories, fat grams, and carbs for a particular item, right? That's why we just keep the Oreos turned around, right? We want the nutrition label. We just don't even want to see it. Just don't even tell me, all right? Your gas gauge tells you how much gas is in your tank. Your clock tells you how much time you have until dinner. Your budget tells you how much you can spend. Your social media account measures your circle of friends. We are happily surrounded on all sides by systems of measurement. So in other words, she says, we, we love to measure because it, it gives us a sense of control. That's why we like to measure things so much. But the problem is, we also do this with people. Wilkins says, we must compare, we must measure ourselves to others to see how good we're doing. Boy, we do that, don't we? Think about that. We do this with all kinds of things. We do this with wealth and social status, right? Oh, the neighbor's got a new car. Maybe I should get a new car, right? Right? We do this in our marriage. Well, she's the problem, not me, right? We do this with just general moral superiority. We look at others and we love to see, we, we love bad news about other people because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Like, well, I would never do that. I'm such a morally better person than that. But look what they did, right? Maybe we save. We compare ourselves, one political group to another, to think that we're so much better. We compare ourselves with issues of power and control and how much we have over someone compared to others. 
We're constantly measuring. We're constantly comparing how we're doing because we want to prove to ourselves, to others, to God, we are worthy and we have control over it. But to compare, to measure, what do we need? We need rules. You can't really measure without some system. So there has to be a system. There has to be rules. We may take them from the Bible. We may just take verses out of the Bible. We may take ideas from the Bible, distort them, twist them, come up with some kind of rule. Right? We, we, if they, if, and if that doesn't give us favorable measurements that we don't like, we just might make some rules up that we live by. So for example, did any of you grow up in a religious home or in a church where, where maybe it seemed like there were far more rules for you to abide by about how good or bad you could be? There were far more talk. There was far more talk, far more emphasis on the rules instead of the good news of Jesus and the actual penalty he paid for your sin. Maybe you grew up in an environment like that. I mean, in the small town I grew up in, it was basically, boy, you better never drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those who do, right? That's kind of the motto. That was it. And don't date girls that do either, right? That's just kind of how it was. It's not all the rules. It's not that all the rules were bad. Hear me out, right? It's not that all the rules were bad. It's just that maybe, maybe there was more concern about the rule keeping and the measurements and the comparison and the control and the scorecards and the human measurement than there was about Christ and his actual death for those sins so that you could live obediently. It's possible that the emphasis is wrong sometimes. David Garland, a theologian, he says, rules help us gauge whether we are making any headway in our religious quest or not. They lead us to regard our obligations to God as a checklist, which mislead us into thinking we have all done or we have done all that God requires. Measuring our spiritual lives with all these man-made, as Paul said, self-made religion. Self-made religion. Think how contradictory that is. Self-made religion? We're worshiping what? Ourselves? Right? Measuring our spiritual lives with just rules that we make up can lead to all sorts of distorted versions of our faith. So what, in other words, what I mean is we could be satisfied with only doing the Christian things that we think are important, right? So if you, if you come up with a list of a Christian checklist of what you need to do to make God happy, and that's just how you operate in your mind, well, think of all the things that you're going to leave off the list. How do you know that your list is complete? What are you comparing it to? This is self-made religion you've come up with. It's a version of God, a version of Christianity that you've come up with. And so you're going to leave stuff out. So you may check the box of church attendance, right? You may check the box of not humiliating yourself publicly by doing something bad. You may check the box of being a hard worker. But what about the other important issues that you've left off your checklist? Are you pure in heart? Are you patient? with your loved ones? Are you building friendships with non-Christians so you can share the gospel with them? See, the checklist doesn't work. When we have a scorecard version of Christianity, it compels us, sorry, it compels us to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to take seriously, right? Which parts we want to take seriously and which parts we will just let slide. Or how about this? 
do you impose rules on others? Or do you look down on others who don't follow the rules that you have on your checklist? And so that makes you feel superior. You see, scorecard Christianity, scorecard Christianity makes us narcissistic. It makes us selfish. The emphasis is always on ourselves and our ability or inability to follow the rules and to impress or unimpress. Theologian David Garland again, he says, a do-it-yourself religion puts self at the center and consequently is doomed to failure. We wind up with a worship of the self. Look what Paul said again in verse 23. He said, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The rules are incapable of changing our hearts. So number three, we've seen the wrong belief, we've seen the wrong practice, the constant measuring and comparing. What is the right belief and practice? It's gospel-centered obedience. Gospel-centered obedience. Those insisting in Colossae who were insisting on rule following for salvation do not understand the gospel themselves. Look at verse 17. Paul said, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 19, he said that they weren't holding fast to the head, right? From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, what Paul desires for the Colossians to know and understand, to believe and to practice, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe up until this point in the sermon, you're thinking, I'm a little uneasy. Truthfully, I'm a little uneasy because, Pastor, I almost feel like you're saying that we should just throw all the rules out the window and live however we want. You see, Jesus came to earth to rescue us, listen, to rescue us from our performance-driven mentality. Jesus came to earth to rescue you from yourself. Jesus came to earth for, to rescue you from thinking that you can save yourself. That is the human problem. The human problem is just like it was for Adam and Eve, it is for us. What God gave them was not enough. They thought that they needed more. They thought that they needed to be their own authority and they did not want to answer to anyone, especially him, though he was the giver of all good gifts. He had given them a place to thrive, to live, to enjoy. Nope, I want to answer to myself. But to do that, I have to have a system of measurement. I have to have a checklist in my brain of what it takes to be good enough for God or good enough for myself, or good enough for others. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, you know what he died for? He died for all of your sins, the bad things you've ever done, and the good things you did with the wrong motivation. Think about that. Jesus died for the good things you've done with the impure motivations of only trying to impress other people. Yeah, how about that? Jesus died for all sin, 
all things that have separated us from God, even the performance trap of thinking that we somehow can save ourselves. Christ suffered and bled for that. See, our sin separates us from God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty that our sin rightly deserves. It should have been us. I should die an eternal death for my own sin against God. But because Jesus shed his blood in my place, in my place, in your place, we can now have a relationship with God because the penalty, the price, the sin is gone. It's dead. It's crucified. It's paid. And so now, with the resurrection of Christ, which we're going to celebrate next week, right? We have seen that death can be defeated. Sin can be defeated. Freedom is real. So as Paul continues on in this letter, what he wants us to see is that Christ's scorecard is ours. On the cross and through the resurrection, do you know what happened? All of your life, the good, the bad, everything, your scorecard, your report card, Jesus took it on himself and died for it. And in exchange, he gives you his scorecard, so to speak. He gives you his record. His record of righteousness is now ours as we put our faith in him. That's why we're accepted and approved. That's why we're known by God. Not because there's some set of scales in heaven. There's not. It's because it's Christ alone. It's what he's done for you alone. So Paul, as he says, as we root ourselves and walk in Christ in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 that we read a couple of weeks ago, as we hold tightly to the only authority we need, the only head of the church, Christ, we can avoid being swayed by these man-made religions, the religious rules that actually lead us further from Christ. But what does that look like in daily life? Aren't there a lot of commands in the New Testament that Jesus says we should obey, even though we've, he did die for our sin and he rose from the grave? Like, what about the rules that we are supposed to obey in the New Testament? What about the, the good moral rules of the Old Testament that we should still adhere to and obey? Do not steal, do not lie, do not murder, right? What about all those? Pastor, are you saying that it doesn't matter ultimately if we obey these or not? No, that's not what we're saying. That's not what the scriptures say. Paul said in Romans, in his letter to the Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Paul says, no, you can't keep sinning just because you know that God's grace is going to cover it if you belong to him. That's ridiculous. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Again, to quote Greer, he addresses this in his book. He says, love for God grows in response to his love for us. Love for God grows in his response, and our response of his love to us and for us. In other words, when we see how much God loves us, that should motivate us to want to obey him and honor him with our lives. So I want to share a few, I want to share three points that Greer gives in his book. Here's a few reasons why we should, why we should obey God's commands. All right. One, number one, he says, God's salvation of us includes teaching us what is right by giving us instructions and commands and remaking our hearts so that we love what is right through the power of the gospel. So why should we obey? Why should we obey rules from the Bible and the New Testament? Why should we look at those and say, I need to do this? Because not to earn God's approval, but so that we can know what is right in this world. 
so that we can be instructed and our hearts can be shaped to know and love the power of what is right, God's truth. Number two, he says, I am to obey the commandments even when I don't want to. If for no other reason than I don't want to spread the destructive power of my sin. Right? The commandments of God in the scriptures keep our sin from expanding. When you obey God's rules, guess what? That protects you and it protects others from you. It protects others. When, when, when we see Jesus tell us right, that we should be uh, patient with others and kind and generous, right? Well, that, that restrains our sin. Because otherwise, if we just say, yeah, I'll just do whatever I want, our sinful nature is going to spill over and it's going to damage other people's lives. We're going to manipulate others. We're going to coerce people into doing things that we want them to do for us. That's just the natural inclination of the human heart is selfishness. But as we obey the rules of God, the teachings of Jesus, it restrains our sin. Number three, disciplining ourselves to practice certain behaviors helps us develop a love for them. Disciplining ourselves to practice certain behaviors helps us develop a love for them. So he gives a great example here I want to share with you. So say you don't feel like reading the Bible. Instead, you feel like watching TV. Is making yourself read the Bible simply legalism, right? Just doing the rule and checking it off your list? No. By feeding your soul the Word of God, you are training your heart to love it, right? So when you wake up tomorrow or at some point tomorrow before you go to bed, whenever, right? The wrong thing, the wrong application from here, I'm going to give you the wrong application from this sermon. Well, Pastor Andrew said, I don't have to follow rules, so I'm not going to read my Bible today, right? Nope, that's not it, right? And it's recorded, so you go back and watch. No, he did not say that, right? No, it's this. I'm going to read my Bible today, even though I feel like watching TV, because, because I know the power of the Word of God. I know that the Lord wants me to know Him in a richer, deeper way And I want to know Him. I want to know Him. I want to love Him. I want to love His commands. I want to see and find joy and desire in doing the right thing that does please God. Not because I'm trying to earn His approval. I already have it. I've already got the approval and the acceptance of God fully and completely. I don't need visions. I don't need to worship angels. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. I don't need to keep a checklist of things. No. In By faith through Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, I have all the acceptance and approval of God I could ever need or want. And that's why I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow. You see it? Do you see it? It's because he loves me that I want to love him. If you're a parent with kids, you desire for your kids to obey you out of love, not fear. But that doesn't mean that you don't have rules for them, right? That doesn't mean that you, dis- you don't discipline them or don't ask them to do certain things. You want your kids to obey you out of love for you. But rules are necessary to teach them and discipline them and protect them. The same is true with God as He parents us. He wants us to love Him and obey Him because we see his love for us, and we're so grateful for it. 
So it's obedience out of love. It's gospel-centered obedience because of what Christ did for us. And we find joy. We learn to find joy in following His commands and obeying His Word. See, God's love for you will never change. Just like I would tell my kids, there's nothing you could ever do that would make me stop loving you. As disappointed I may become in your actions or your behavior or your choices, there's nothing you could ever do that would make me stop loving you. Do you know that God says the same thing to you? There's nothing you could do on whatever little checklist you have in your brain that would make Him stop loving you if you belong to Him. But boy, do you know the joy and the pleasure of obeying God and following His rules and seeing how good they really are for you and for others. It's the love of God that compels us to obey God. I hope you see that today. That is true fullness of Christ. Is Christ enough? Yes, his record of righteousness is ours. We don't have to impress. We see his love for us, his record given to us. That's why we obey. And we find joy in the obedience.